0: Hey everyone, Mickey here. You are listening to Wikipedia and today on the podcast I am excited to bring to you my conversation that I had with Dr. Bill Campbell. So Dr. Campbell is one of the leading researchers in the physique world and you guys know that I'm super interested and passionate about helping people improve their body composition and a lot of Dr. Campbell's research has informed the practices that I use with my own clients and in my group programs. Dr. Campbell is an Associate Professor of Exercise Science and the Director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Lab at the University of South Florida. He has a PhD in Exercise, Nutrition and Preventative Health. He's authored three books on sports nutrition and over 150 scientific abstracts and manuscripts focusing on the topics of sports nutrition and exercise science. And he is the previous President of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. In today's episode, we talk all about his research into diet breaks, intermittent versus continuous dieting, the importance of protein for fat loss, particularly for women, in combination with resistance training, and much more. And I think male or female, you're going to get a lot from the conversation that uh, Dr. Campbell and I have, and he shares a lot of his own sort of insights into what he sees in his lab and clinically, and with the people that he deals with. Just before we kick on into the today's interview, just to remind you that the best way to support this podcast is to please subscribe on your favorite platform, and where it's possible, leave a five star review, share it with your mates. And in addition to that, if you felt like you needed more recipe or meal inspiration, head on over to my website, mickeywillardin.com, and sign up to my recipe portal for $12 a month. You get access to over 600 recipes, and they are updated very regularly. You get my weekly emails, you get one-on-one with me via a messaging system, you have access to our private Facebook page where we do lives, we do weekly forums, you get the whole shebang really so I can help you in your nutrition journey and that is for $12 a month. Alright team, please enjoy the conversation that I have with Dr. Bill Campbell. Dr. Bill Campbell, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me this morning. I really appreciate it. Um, can we kick off by giving you to chat about how you got into your research on exercise performance and enhancing physique? Yes,
1: yeah, so I think my earlier life passion was bodybuilding. So I've always been interested in building muscle and losing fat and dietary supplements. And I played sports, so I was interested in sports nutrition. So I, I just knew if my dream job would have something to do with those areas, but I didn't know that until my late 20s. I was actually in a different career. I was, you know selling I was in sales and marketing. And then I realized, you know, I don't want to do this the rest of my life, but I, I do like working out. I like nutrition, I like dietary supplements or at least studying them. So I, I made the decision in my late twenties to go back to school, not really thinking I would be a professor and a researcher. Just, just knowing that I want to do something in that area. Mm. So I, I think I'm one of those very blessed people by God that that is able to do what what the exact thing that that I'm interested in doing.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, so I um I heard you speak on another podcast, and it might have been with um, Lane Norton and Holly Baxter about your sort of initial sales job and then sort of getting into studying it and then um, kind of just furthering that aspect. And I think all, what I love about what you do, Bill, is that you, you're you about enhancing physique, exercise, performance, but it's not necessarily just at that elite athlete or physique competitor level. Like I feel like you almost do what we're all sort of looking for is you're you're doing research on people sort of just like us which you don't often find in research.
3: Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. I'd like to, to um, my ideal is that my research helps people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. So people yeah. that are at the elite level, they're not living a maintainable lifestyle. They're elite. They can structure seven hours of their day around their food preparation, their training. Most people can't do that. So I'd like to find out the best practices. The best strategies to help normal people get the best bodies if they want it. So if somebody wants to have lower body fat and a little more muscle mass, what are the best things they can do to execute on that? And obviously, I learn from bodybuilders. I learn from those elite people because I think that those are the experts in fat loss.
2: Mm. And then
1: we, you know, we design studies around different lifestyle approaches that help people optimize their physique. So, I, yeah, you're exactly right. I'm, I, I like to think I serve the the serious fitness minded individual.
0: Yeah, and that'll be a lot of people that will be listening to a podcast like this. And I often think, Bill, and I don't know how you feel about it, but when I'm looking at research in fat loss, a lot of it is if we look at the other end of the spectrum, it's on people who are like extremely overweight or would fit into that obese category. And it, it almost feels a little bit um, demotivating is not quite the right word, but you look at the outcome of a particular intervention and these people have gone on a very controlled sort of intervention for three, six or nine months or, you know, quite a long period of time. And the average weight loss on that might be, you know, 1.3 kilos, which might be a significant difference in between both groups, but actually that's not really that meaningful for that person or individual in the trial who has a serious amount of weight to lose. I I find that really interesting. I'm not sure how you feel about that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Well, one one thing that I teach my students a lot is a lot of these studies, they report weight loss Mm. and you know, and I know that's not really the focus because, and I'll give a perfect example. There are a lot of studies when they compare exercise versus diet for mm. weight loss. They find that either there's no difference or that diet's always better. Yeah. In fact, they'll they'll often say exercise didn't cause hardly any weight loss. Well, the reason that's the case is exercise causes a lot of fat loss, but in, mm. you know, in in non-trained people, they actually gain muscle mass even from aerobic exercise. So the, when you only look at weight loss, you don't get a true picture of physique changes. so there's one problem with that. and then the other one just to, to go off on a tangent for a second. These studies that compare exercise versus diet, they'll mm. put somebody in a 500 calorie diet caloric deficit and they'll exer- and, and then the other group exercises at maybe like 200 calories per day. so it's not even an equalized energy deficit. So, I I say all of this to say, yes, when weight loss is minimal, make sure that we're always looking past the weight loss and looking at the body composition, or because it's possible they actually lost muscle or gained muscle mass and lost more fat mass than what the scale would suggest. And then the other part of this is the people that I research and the people that I think I serve, if they are losing one to two kgs of body weight, if they're not, usually I don't, well, I don't study obese individuals anymore. That's mm. still a big difference in their physiques and um, mm. they're already relatively lean to start with.
0: Yeah. That's such a good point. And I saw you had a post on your social media feed on Instagram and I absolutely love your feed. It's, it's it's so informative and you're really quite practical with it and people, you know, you can learn so much. Um, You had a post in and around the constrained model of energy expenditure. And I yeah. know, and you, and you were very respectful, obviously of the researchers in the field, like in terms of their findings that in fact, exercise might not be so helpful for weight loss, but is this talking to your point that you've just mentioned that if it's solely weight you're looking at, then yes, there's on balance, there might not be that different, but you, you have to look beyond. Was that the, the sort of point of your post?
1: Yeah. So a lot of my newfound knowledge of the importance of, yeah, like just weight loss was based on my work or not my work, but my reading of the, the constrained energy theory. Mm. And I realized, wow, that, that is really overplayed. Like they, the message is often from, from that research. And again, it might not, I'm not saying it's the researchers. It's oftentimes no. the media interpreting their research, but they basically give the message exercise is worthless for fat loss. Like don't do it. And that's, it's couldn't be further from the truth. It's, um, exercise is an amazing fat loss strategy. Mm. Uh, In fact, if you look at the handful of studies, and I mean, less than five, when they directly compare exercise versus diet Mm. and they have an equal Caloric deficit or or energy deficit, meaning that we're going to reduce calories by five hundred from food, or we're going to increase exercise energy expenditure by five hundred calories. Exercise is better; it causes more fat loss yeah. than diets, and you also get all of the added benefits of the health, the insulin sensitivity improvements, the joint integrity, the la- uh, better depression or mental health outcomes. So exercise is better. Um, when you're comparing apples to apples, but that doesn't mean that people are as motivated to exercise. So I would much rather—I don't like aerobic exercise, even though I know the data. Yeah. I prefer just to reduce my calories a little bit. Um, but ultimately, both work, and I—I'm—I don't like the messaging when I don't believe it's true.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and, and I absolutely um, agree with you. The way that the media. I mean, they do that clickbait uh, headline, but in addition to that, there are actually many. I look at some of the programs that are out there to potentially help people reach their sort of physique, and they may well be speaking to an audience who does have an excessive amount of fat, fat to lose. And a lot of the messaging is it's hard work to exercise. You know, you don't want to be doing that, and entirely you know and you don't need to um and that's i mean that's a whole other issue which which we won't really get into i'm um, here but i <laughs> find it sort of interesting um bill you've done so much research in the space of non-linear dieting actually and i really like how your sort of studies explore the notion that yeah you can have this consistent drop in calories to achieve fat loss or you can um, for want of a better term calorie cycle or change it up, Can, what sparked your interest in looking at these uh, different approaches to dieting that isn't just a straight continuous yeah. calorie deficit?
1: Yeah, I would say two things, and by the way, you mentioned about the exercise being hard work, and we won't talk about that but i'm if 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 there's time at the end, I'm happy to to talk about that because m- my opinion is not popular and um, but I feel like the messaging is all one side right now. And I think people do need to hear the truth about how the the work and the, 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 you know, the, it's not okay to be overweight for health, despite what we're hearing. But again, we can, we can address that later. Um, my interest in nonlinear dieting was peaked with the Matador study. So there was a study published, um, maybe 2016, 2018, I don't remember, but it reported in obese males when they when they dieted for two weeks and then they took a two week break and they went back to their maintenance calories and they they just repeated that cycle eight times. So 16 mm. weeks of dieting and 16 weeks of taking breaks, they lost significantly more body fat. They they were able to maintain their med- metabolic rates better. Mm. And I saw that and I was like, wow, that is amazing results. Um, and, and, and it fit kind of my, uh, my paradigm for how dieting should be. It doesn't have to be a, a, a race Like take your time and what better way to take a time than keep taking breaks. Mm. So I thought this is, there's something to this. Now, since that time, my lab has done two studies. Uh, one of them has been published. The other one is under review now. And I think that the Matador study, which initially caught my interest, was kind of an outlier study. Okay. Um, it 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 hasn't been replicated, like, meaning that all of the other studies done since then that I'm aware of didn't have nearly the positive findings that that study had. So, the other reason why it piques my interest is based on the study that we did. Um, Again, my philosophy is helping people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle.
2: Mm. It just
1: so happens that most people in their normal lifestyles, they eat more calories on the weekends than Mm. they do during the week. Mm. So I think it makes sense. Let's design a diet that works with that approach, that works with your lifestyle. So we did a nonlinear dieting study where the subjects were able to increase their calories on the weekends. And that one, not, not as good as the Matador study, but we did have some positive findings with that. So mm. there was my interest, the Matador study and just my, my recognition in my own life and in mm. the research that, that people, they eat more food on the weekends. And that's a nonlinear approach to dieting if you can make that into a diet strategy.
0: Mm. What was it about the Matador study that you think made it an outlier? Could, like, could you look at it again, sort of in reflection with all of the other research, and go, okay, that's why they found such a positive effect, or just it was what it was?
1: Yeah, so I think the reason that the group that increased their or that had the better outcomes, I think they simply adhered to the diet better. They yeah. were at, when they were dieting. They were dieting at the level that the researchers wanted. I think it was like a thirty-three percent caloric restriction. My thought is that the other group was not as their their adherence wasn't as good. Yeah. So that that would tell me it's not physiological. It's just more psychological. But that's still a powerful finding. I, it doesn't matter how what what the what the what the physiology is. If the endpoint is greater fat loss and it was that they could adhere to it better, mm. that uh, we should learn from that. Um, and I will say this, a lot of people now, because again, the, the research and some of my own that's not published yet is coming out saying that diet breaks or these refeeds aren't any better than the traditional continuous dieting approach. So people are saying, yep, they're worthless. There's, there's no help. I think that's a very a very naive interpretation. They never cause harm taking these these nonlinear approaches. They're never causing greater fat loss. Yes, they're taking more time because you're having to to do the breaks, but it never hurts. And in in both of the most recent studies, the one that was published and, and ours that will come out, that we both found that it improved One of the three-factor eating inventories, which was the, uh, they call it disinhibition, which is the propensity to overeat.
2: Mm. So in
1: both of these most recent studies, if you take breaks, whether it's every other week or every third week, it helps, it prevents the drive to overeat that you do have when you never take a break.
2: Mm. That's
1: all. I mean, what, what causes diets to fail? You lose the battle to hunger. Yeah. And it looks like these diet breaks are providing some 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 defenses against the, this drive to eat. So I think that's um, uh, even though they might not provide a direct benefit, even though some research says they do, they never cause harm. And I think yeah. they institute better long term dietary
2: habits.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Bill. Can you talk us through the, the study that has been published and sort of the the level of restriction, I suppose, and also what even is like a, a refeed? Like, what does that even mean? Is it a, you know, a, people hear that and think, oh, cheat day or, you know, binge fest. But I, yeah. um, I appreciate that it's a little bit different from that. So can you sort of detail that out?
1: Yeah, so the, you, you and I are using the term nonlinear dieting. I like to say that that's the umbrella term. So there's a lot of things that fit underneath nonlinear dieting. One of the terms, the two terms we're going to use is diet breaks and mm-hmm. diet refeeds. Mm. Diet breaks are exactly what they sound like. You're, you're, you're in a diet, but you're taking a break from that diet.
2: Mm.
1: And a diet break is typically defined as a one-week or more of a break from the diet. Um, Typically, they're one week, maybe two weeks. In some cases, they're even a little longer than two weeks. Mm -hmm. A diet refeed is similar, but it's more on a day scale than it is a week scale. So in our study, our diet refeed was two days per week on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So they didn't take a week off from dieting. But during the week, they dieted for five days and then they took a break or a refeed for two days. And in all of these cases, we have to make sure that we're aware that when they go back to their to their when they're on a break, they are not just eating whatever they want. They are going back to uh, maintenance calories. So Mm. they're not really overeating. But it sure feels like it to them because they've been dieting and now they get to increase their calories, but not above what they were doing before the diet started. So that's a very important definition of these or an application of these. It's not really a cheat day where you're eating just tons of calories.
2: Mm.
0: And I feel like this approach has so many benefits for people in that who 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 feel like they're either on a diet or off a diet. And they're never sort of in that middle ground of practicing what it's like to eat in a way that maintains your body weight, you know, because even if they're maintaining their body weight when they're off a diet, it's often because they are heavily restricting on some days and then overeating on others. So um, they're sort of, I suppose, on balance that they're maintaining their weight rather than on those maintenance calories. Um. With regards to the energy restriction of the people with the the refeeds, so throughout the week, their restriction was greater than those who were just continuously dieting to be sort of uh, on balance set?
1: Yes, yes. So in our study, we did an average weekly deficit of 25%. So if a subject was eating 2,000 calories in their normal life over the course of a week, we reduced it by 25%. So that Mm. subject would be eating 1,500 calories. Mm. But the only way that works when you have, that's an average of seven days. Mm. So what we had to do in our refeed group, because they were spending two days at 100% of their calories, Mm. what that meant was Monday through Friday, they had to reduce their calories more than 25%. We had to reduce it to 35% five days per week. And then when you factored in the two days of maintenance eating, that was an overall average on the week of a 25% deficit.
0: Mm. And what were there, were they given any instruction as to how to meet their maintenance calorie needs on those refeed weekends?
1: Yes, we, we, we instituted a few things. Um, the first thing was 25% less calories, um, overall in the week. Yeah. But when they were able, when they did their refeeds so that the weekends, um, they had to have at least 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And that was true of all the subjects, regardless of what group they were in. Mm -hmm. So some of it had to come from protein. And then we told them, okay, you've been dieting at 35% lower calories. Keep the protein the same on the weekend, but increase your calories back to maintenance levels, but do that all from carbohydrates. So we mm. said, emphasize carbohydrates. And the reason we did that was there was some research prior that, that um, reported that leptin levels were improved in um, dieting females who increased carbs for a three-day period. Mm. So we did two days. Um... And that was the rationale. Now, whether or not that actually matters, we, I, I don't know. But if, if um, it, at least in that prior study, it did improve acute leptin levels. And just for anybody that's wondering, what are leptin levels? If your leptin levels are high, that tends to be associated with not like non-hunger.
3: Mm. Um,
1: if leptin levels are low, that's highly associated with a strong drive to eat. So. If you can diet and keep your leptin levels high, that that probably is a good sign of longer-term adherence and probably not going to—you're going to be less likely to quit the diet or cheat.
0: Mm, and I—and whilst— did you mean you didn't measure leptin, but of course you had that inventory that talked about hunger, which could almost be a proxy for, I mean, you'd never probably say that in science, but, you know, as you're sort of talking about it to people, you know, it's quite a good indication that potentially um, you found, you know, that could have also been going on with that um, sort of carbohydrate increase.
1: Yes. Yeah. Now we did measure leptin in a subset of subjects, but it was just at the beginning of the study and end of the study, so we didn't really measure leptin um, like before the diet break and then or the refeed and then after, which would have been probably better. We we, so we just did um, some subjects before and at the end, and what happens with leptin generally as you lose fat, your leptin levels go down. A lot of leptin is produced by fat cells, Mm. so. If you have less fat cells or, or smaller fat cells, you produce less leptin. So that's, that's what we found.
0: Yeah. Um, Bill, can you tell us anything about your study? Is it a follow-on study, the one that is in peer review for publication now? Um, are you able to share any details on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I can share a lot about that. Um, we okay. presented that data last, uh, last year at a conference. It's just not published yet. Uh, That was not a refeed study. So that was more of a traditional diet break study. And what we did was we took resistance trained females and put them on a six week diet. So we Mm. wanted to reduce their calories by uh, 25% Mm -hmm. for a six week period. And again, these subjects were resistance trained females. Mm. Um, Just as a side note, my lab does a lot of female-specific research um, mm. in, this, in this world of um, physique enhancement. And one group dieted for six weeks straight. The other group, the diet break group, they dieted for two weeks, and then they took a week break, and then they dieted for two weeks again, and then they took another one-week break,
2: mm. and then they
1: dieted for a final two weeks. So mm. both groups had a six-week diet, fa- or diet period. It's just that one of them, um, their total intervention was eight weeks because we interspersed two diet breaks, and the major conclusions were it didn't didn't do, didn't offer any advantage, it didn't it didn't it didn't cause any harm. They didn't gain any fat, but Mm. it didn't offer any advantage except for this 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 um, propensity to overeat. Mm. Their their propensity to overeat was lower in the group that took these diet breaks. So that again, Mm. that's a pretty consistent finding in the recent research of diet breaks. And again, I think that's pretty powerful. And the other thing that I love about what we did was we gave our subjects scales. So during that they took home with them, um, we supervised their workouts, but during their diet breaks, they weighed themselves every day because now we can have information on, well, if you're going to take a diet break, will you gain weight? Will you lose weight? What happens? And we were able to, to look at, to, you know, to get data on actual people doing this. The average mm. was a gain of, I think it was a little less than a kilogram. Some, some did lose body weight. Some gained a little body weight overall it was a little bit of a gain, but that didn't make any difference by the end of the study. Like meaning that they lost it again when they were dieting. And that was just weight. We we mm. didn't really, um, we didn't have validated measures of body composition. Mm. So I, the reason I think that's important, it just tells people you can expect some weight gain during a diet break period. But at the, if, if you just stay on the diet after this, that, that will not have any impact on your overall fat loss outcomes.
0: Yeah. And Bill, do you have a sense of what might be preferable for people out there if we're thinking about whether or not a two to d- a two to three day refeed is going to be a better approach than, say, an entire week? like what what's your gut? Like do you have a gut feeling about that um if there was no necessarily no difference in the the sort of clinical um your trials?
2: Yeah. well,
1: one thing, our diet refeed where where it was the two-day approach. They didn't lose more fat. But they mm. were able to maintain their muscle mass or their, their fat-free mass, specifically their dry fat-free mass when we account for body water, significantly better than the group that didn't do the refeed. Mm. And it's not surprising if you maintain your muscle mass, you also have a better outcome on your metabolic rate. Yeah. So their metabolic rates were also maintained better than the other, than the other group, at least when compared to, to baseline levels. So knowing that that was the only study in resistance-trained people, and we had a clear benefit, and when you compare that to the diet break studies where there wasn't benefits, I, I think I would. I would, and again, my lab's done two studies now. Mm. Um, I think the two-day approach may be better, but that's that's based on just two studies, one in each one.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: ultimately, I think the best approach is what would a client or the individual, what are they, what, what excites them more? Would they rather take an entire week break Mm. or are they really motivated to diet and just taking a two day break every weekend is better? Um, I would always default to what's going to help, what their, what the client preference is. So in my case, I love, I love weekend. Like I want to do it. I want to increase my calories on the weekend. I don't I really do not want to diet on the weekend. Uh, so I'm always going to default to a refeed approach where I'm going to take two days instead of an entire week of of increasing my calories.
0: And I guess as well, like if I think about um, holiday seasons and and people's social lives and things like that, it just provides them with, as long as they we can manage expectations around how long it might take to lose the the weight that they want to lose, then um I think there's that people who feel like it are either on or off can recognize that actually a diet break is actually just part of the process. And if you've got Thanksgiving, if you've got Christmas, if you've got Easter and you're going to be spending time out of your normal environment, then it's not the end of your diet world to take a break from it. And it means that you, it almost would encourage a little bit more dietary restraint, probably knowing that that if you just sort of adhere to a higher than what your sort of uh, diet calories are at, you can still get to enjoy a lot of things, but not feel like you've lost control. Maybe.
3: I
1: think that's uh, exactly right. Now. I am not a a psych exercise psychologist, Mm. but what you said, I think has, is very important. If you're going into the holiday and it's part of your plan to take a break, now you're following your plan, like yeah. you're, you're, you're on task rather than, and I think this is really what hurts a lot of people. They think, well, I'm just going to not going to eat as much during the holiday and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to diet and they don't do that. Now they failed. Now they have that guilt, that anxiety. Mm-hmm. And when, if they just change their approach, change their paradigm, yeah, I'm not going to diet, but that's part of my plan. Yeah, and I'm even fine with like for myself. Uh, let's say Thanksgiving. You guys, you guys don't celebrate uh, Thanksgiving, okay? No. But Christmas, Easter, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's okay. Let's say Christmas. Um, if my normal maintenance calories are three thousand to make it easy, maybe for three days, the day before Christmas, Christmas, and the day after, I'm gonna plan to go to four thousand calories. I'm gonna eat thirty three percent more. Now, is that a great decision? It's not a great decision if I'm trying to lose fat. But I can make up for that or make adjustments before and after. And I've just given myself freedom to do that. I think that's so much different than saying I'm going to do something, then not doing it and having the guilt. And then ultimately, I think a lot of people do is they just quit. They're like, oh, I can't do this. No, you can. Let's just plan for the times where it's going to be more difficult.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the way that you sort of described how you might approach a holiday season is that recognition that you're i think a lot of people treat each day in their diet as almost this isolated sort of moment in time so you've you're on a 2200 calorie diet and you've got to hit that every single day whereas if you instead sort of step back and go right well over across the course of a week i've got 2200 times 7 that's not actually like what well, what's that 15400 uh, i don't know whatever it was 15400 and mm-hmm. Then, if you have those additional kind of higher calorie days, then you can sort of shave some of those calories off on the other days. And then it all sort of washes out in the end.
1: Yes. Yep. Yeah. Mm. I, I agree. It's, it's, that's how the body works. Now, it does come down to what you do on a day to day basis. I don't want to yeah. minimize that. But a plan that allows you to feel good about the plan that, again, works with you on weekends, on holidays, that gives you freedom. I think it's, it's, it's the way to go. It's, it's working with your lifestyle rather than against it.
0: Yeah. You know, Bill, what you know, I get a lot of pushback from people in my sort of area um, from the anti-diet culture or movement saying that tracking's obsessive, that thinking about macros is obsessive, uh, that it's too structured for some people and then it's sort of destined to fail them. Um, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's um, it, it. I I would agree. It's an obsessive practice. Mm.
2: Um,
1: but some people are inclined to obsessive practices, and that doesn't mean it's unhealthy. Now, again, I want to be careful. I'm not a psychologist, so I don't. I don't. I'm not. I don't speak in from the literature in that area. But to just to make blanket statements and say it's obsessive and doomed to fail. Well, that's a that are making a lot of assumptions with that. And I would say, if if it's if somebody can have success with something other than tracking macros, great. That's what they should do. Mm. I would still suggest every human being that that has the privilege of counting macros, meaning that they're not you know um, in poverty, just worried meal to meal. So that Mm. we're not we're not talking about that 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 unfortunate situation. There is a
2: huge
1: immense educational benefit to tracking your macros for six months of your life. Maybe you never do it again, but the education that you learn about food. Mm. And if you pay attention to how your body responds to that food, like what happens when you eat higher protein, what happens when you eat less, you understand what food is. You understand what foods are. You know that butter is most, it's fat. You know that broccoli is carbs. You know that, um, chicken breast is, is protein. That's an education that you now have the rest of your life. So mm. I'm, a, I'm an educator, a professor. I'm always going to advocate you should learn, invest in your body, invest in your education. There is no better education in your dieting, food intake life than tracking your macros for several months. If mm. it's not working for you or it's too obsessive, great, don't do it anymore. I, 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 not like I make money from macro tracking. I, it makes no difference to me. Uh, but on the same, on the same um, conversation, I need it. I'm, I, if I don't track, I, I gain weight and when mm-hmm. I gain weight, I knowingly and now less healthy. Yeah. Um, COVID, I'm more susceptible to COVID, the more body fat I carry on my, or at least for the, out, the the adverse effects of COVID. Yeah. So to me, macro tracking helps keep me in a more fit state than Mm. not tracking. Now, that's not true for everybody, but there are a lot of people like me.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, I appreciate. And, you know, I found it super helpful, even as a nutritionist of, you know, a couple of decades to track to ensure that I'm getting what I need to help support my training. So it's sort of that flip side. It's not the, the tracking from a restrictive perspective. It's like, am I actually meeting my protein? Am I, you know, practicing what I preach? That kind of thing. And also, yeah. if you do learn that you're obsessive about it, well, that's still an education, isn't it? Like, you know, like, hey, I tried it and it really wasn't for me, so now I have to try and figure out what might work best. So you're right, it's totally all learning.
1: Yeah so and think about this the person who does that and as an example if they walk by a bowl of candy or chocolate or something that's high calorie they may just you know you know take two or three handfuls and, and go on their way but when you're tracking that you really appreciate wow that was 400 calories and mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that you shouldn't that you should never do that but I don't without tracking I don't think people appreciate the caloric density of processed candy, chocolate types of foods, and I love all of that stuff. I just feel like I have more freedom and can enjoy it more when I'm tracking.
0: No, um, I agree, and it's like the peanut butter jar. Don't get me started there, because <laughs> that 15 grams of peanut butter is nowhere near as much as you think it is 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 what you thought it was. Yes, yeah. That's
1: Right. Peanut butter is Like I, I like you, um, i like, I don't know, like two months ago, or maybe it was this past year, did a serving and I waited. I was like three times more than what I thought. I'm a professional in this space. I, know. I should know. I track my macros. Uh, I don't eat. I didn't. I hadn't eaten peanut butter in, in a long time before that. But yeah, it got me. And I'm yeah. somebody that technically should know.
0: No, I'm exactly the same, and it's so. What i found really interesting is, is um, as I've sort of evolved over the years in my thinking around nutrition, I've sort of gone from that. Uh, you know, I did the nutrition science degree, then. I sort of moved into that more sort of like sphere, you know, in 2010 and then suddenly uh, like nut butter was back on the menu because it wasn't all about low fat. And then of course a lot of people also jumped on that bandwagon and still do in the keto and stuff, which I think can be super helpful for so many people and, and if it's your Preferred dietary approach and it works for you. That's amazing. But those carrots that people used to use as a snack suddenly were sort of switched out for like nuts and uh, peanut butter sachets and uh, cheese and and things which are highly calorically dense. Um, yeah. And and preventing someone from sort of tapping into their own fat stores, you know. So um, it's a common sort of um uh it it often catches people out. I think.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably very hard to overeat on carrots. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, <laughs> yeah.
0: good luck. Exactly. Hey, um, but nuts well, and cheese. Yeah. Oh, so much so. Um, now I saw there was a recent study published by a student of yours, um, Lauren Conlon, looking at flexible dieting versus rigid meal plans. Um, are you able to sort of briefly describe what some of the findings were in and around that particular piece of research?
1: Yes, yeah, so yeah, you mentioned my student. She coordinated that study. Um, she de- um, basically was the mastermind behind that entire study. So we we just published that, um, I think that was earlier this year, um, so it's a very recent publication. We actually did this study a couple years ago. That was the the first study that I'm aware of that that has compared flexible dieting versus a more rigid approach. So a lot of people, you know, embrace flexible dieting and we think that it's just as good or maybe better, but there was um, never research, at least not in resistance trained people. So fit Mm. people. So that's what we did. So we had two groups in this study. We told them to everybody reduce your calories by 25% for a 10 week period. And as they do that, we also made—I um, think it was one—they pro- had to eat two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So we had protein high, and then they were, of course, resistance training. And we told them that don't don't add or subtract any cardio. And what we found—the main finding was that after ten weeks, well, let me just explain the differences between mm. the two groups. So a flexible dieting group, we said, here's your macros. It's twenty-five percent lower. Hit hit your protein goal. And then the rest get equally, approximately equal from fat and carbs, not really caring if they did or didn't. We just wanted to make sure that they that they were at their 25% fewer than maintenance calories and that they were hitting their protein. And the other group, we said, we're not giving you macros. We're giving you just calories. Mm. And here's some example diets that will fit these calories. And there were just a few, um, like... Um, exchanges that they could use. Not very Mm. many though. So like maybe they, maybe we had them eat chicken breast and broccoli and orange juice as a meal. And instead of chicken breast, maybe they wanted salmon or lean beef instead of broccoli, maybe cauliflower or asparagus. So they had very limited choices. And we would, we called that the rigid diet and the flexible diet. Again, they could eat whatever they want as long as they hit those specific macros. Mm. And after the 10-week diet phase, there was no differences in fat loss. They both lost the same amount of fat, both maintained the same amount of muscle, and metabolic rate was was the same. The only thing different between the two groups was in the 10 weeks after the diets, what we called the post-diet phase. The subjects in the flexible dieting group gained significantly more lean body mass in the 10 weeks after the diet.
3: Mm. Why?
1: I don't know we, we don't know. I'm we are hesitant to say, oh, flexible dieting's more anabolic we, I, I don't think that's a f- that, that would be reaching. Um, mm. but we did we did observe that, so that's what reported. But I think the the main take home is if you prefer somebody giving you a meal plan and that helps you adhere better, that's great there's there's nothing better than that. Or if you prefer, don't tell me what to eat, I want to choose my foods, that's great. There's nothing better than that. As long as you control calories, both approaches are effective for fat loss. That's that's the main finding of that study.
0: Mm. And it seems, when I was reading the study, and, and I've heard, I think, Lauren talk about it on her social media account and, and stuff, it seems... It's you know, maybe a personality thing, as, as you've just said. You know, some people actually f- like that decision being taken away. Like they don't need the, that decision burden of what to eat. They just, they're really good at following structure, a plan, and they'll do it if they think it's going to sort of lead to the outcome that they're, that they're um, looking for. Yet other people, and again, it comes back to that whole structure. Some people just actually would prefer to make those decisions themselves and have that sort of flexibility, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And again, there's no, there's nothing, one was not better than the other. So whatever works for you, you can feel good that it is a great, the best approach for you as an individual.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Bill, I'm a big advocate for protein and what I notice in my practice is that women often really struggle to get the protein that they need and and for whatever reason they just find it extremely difficult. Now I understand you've done a um you've you've actually looked at a research looking at sort of the impact of high versus low protein on fat loss in in females. Are you able to sort of chat a little bit about your research there and what you've found?
1: Yeah, so that that was a um, I think that was probably my best work as a researcher in in the sense of driving, everything's male dominant. So that was a Mm -hmm. study that we looked at resistance-trained females in protein intake. So what we did was we took resistance-trained females and randomized them to one of two groups, a high-protein group and a low-protein group. And at the end of this eight-week period, the high-protein group gained a significant amount of lean body mass, significantly more than the low-protein group. They also lost body fat, significant amount compared to baseline. And the funny thing was, well, the difference between the two groups was the high protein group was eating 2.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass per day. That's a lot of protein. Mm -hmm. Um, We gave them uh, protein supplements to help with that. Mm -hmm. And then the low protein group was eating only 0.9 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So a big difference. Mm. Um, it it could be that you don't need 2.5 it may maybe 1.8 is enough we didn't look at a, a middle level but the amazing thing was with the, the, to me the the most striking feature of that study was the high protein group lost body fat
2: mm.
1: but they increased their calories
2: mm. so they
1: increased their calories by almost 300 calories per day but it was all in the form of protein yeah so there's something about increasing calories from protein alone that was responsible for a reduction in fat mass. And that's not the only study to show that. There are a few other examples with similar findings.
2: Yeah. So
1: don't think of high protein just as building muscle. I think you, you, it also has impacts on fat loss as well.
0: Yeah. And can you sort of theorize what's going on there? Is it the thermogenic aspect yeah, that,
1: that, that has to be part of it. It's the mm. only thing that makes sense. Um, mm. But if you talk about the thermic effect of protein, thermic effect would say if you eat 100 calories of protein, you burn 25 calories just digesting and absorbing it. Mm. So That's still 75 calories of energy that, mm. you know, that's not like you're losing energy by eating protein. Other than the thermic effect, I don't have a, I mean, obviously a lot of that, some of those other proteins or amino acids are being directed towards muscle protein synthesis. Mm. That takes energy as well. Um, but I don't have a, a, a good mechanism to be able to explain why that's the case, because it doesn't make sense. If you increase calories, as we are all taught in grad school, you should gain body fat, but it's, it's not what happened in our study and a few others. Where they increase protein Mm. in resistance-trained people,
2: Mm. they either
1: lose fat or they don't gain fat, even when calories are going up.
2: Yeah.
0: Super interesting. And Bill, when you're talking about resistance-trained females, what constitutes a resistance-trained female just for the people out there who are just like, oh, would I fit into that category? So what's your sort of criteria?
1: Well, in the in that study we just talked about the protein study, that was 6 months of prior resistance training experience. Mm. Subjects also had to be able to deadlift 1.25 times their body weight to get into the study. Okay. And we lost there were some subjects or some 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 interested subjects that that weren't strong enough or that that failed that, so um that's that, that's not a perfect criteria because maybe they did maybe they've been training upper body for 5 years and they just never did deadlifts but at least yes. it was some criteria to demonstrate hey do you have a base level of whole body strength or or mm. the back and hams glutes for that uh let me think the other study the the diet break study i think that was also 1 year of resistance training experience um and that was subjective like we we didn't have a test in that study to to that they had to meet to get in But typically when you see the word resistance trained, six months or more often one or two years Mm. of prior resistance training experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And I also love that um, the higher protein focus that that you take, like because even in that sort of low protein group, it's 0.9 grams per kg body weight, which is sort of in line with what people understand the recommended protein intake levels to sort of be, um, not sort of recognizing that sort of this minimum threshold for survival not necessarily what you might need in order to optimize body composition and regulate hunger and, and all the rest of it. Do you like, I suppose with the protein supplements, did the people in that study, do you recall any sort of qualitative findings in and around how easy it was for them to consume that amount? I don't remember.
1: We actually told them they had to ingest 2.2 grams. Yeah. And they actually surpassed that. They actually ingested 2.5. Um, I know what helped was the fact that we gave them protein supplements immediately after their workouts where, where mm. we watched them drink it. Yeah. And we gave them to take home that they could, you know, then put into their, because they actually track their macros, all the subjects in that study track their macros. Um, and for whatever reason, I don't recall subjects complaining about Mm. that high protein, but you and I know that a lot of, you know, a lot of people, males and females, that's a lot of protein for people to, to try to hit per day, um. I I personally get that much, about two point two grams per kg, but that's with the help of protein supplements and usually one protein um bar per day for myself. It would be it would be challenging if I had to do that on Whole Foods for for
0: myself. Yeah. I think I'm I'm the same. I'm quite a I think I was sort of put onto protein powders and, and protein bars uh through sort of Bill Phillips, Body for Life, if you recall that program way back in the nineties or whatever. And then just sort of, um, I've always quite liked them. So that's, you know, and I know not everyone loves the taste of protein powder, but I've always been like, Oh no, this is great. Yeah. I love hey, it. You, you just <laughs> dated
1: yourself. I, I'm surprised that you, you were old enough to remember. <laughs> <Bill Philly. laughs>
0: I know. No, I, yeah, I have just dated myself actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, there you go. It must be my, uh, dietary approach and my, you know, healthy love of resistance training and cardio and all the rest of it. The lifestyle yes. stuff, Bill. Yeah. Hey, that,
1: that whole, that whole, um, Bill Phillips, that, that really lit my fire. Um, mm. I used to get the magazine muscle media 2000. Um, that was a little bit right before his body for life. So I was actually, yes, I was even in the front end of that, that craze. <laughs> yeah uh, before he went more mainstream, I guess, with the body for life aspect.
0: Yeah. And what I loved about it, actually, it was just, it was so simple. You know, you just had a unit of carbs, a unit of protein, a little bit of fat. You could use his supplements or get it from whole food. I remember him sort of saying that in his book. And then this, you know, and not a particularly crazy exercise regime to sort of go with it. And those principles, maybe you wouldn't necessarily eat as often as what he would have suggested back then. But the principles haven't really changed over the years with regards to what is actually effective for fat loss. I mean, you can spin it in different ways to make it sound sort of new and exciting, but actually those foundations haven't appeared to to have changed much.
1: Yes. Yep. I agree.
0: Yeah. Bill, do you, um, have you done any research in the reverse dieting space or do you have any thoughts around that? And I haven't actually seen, um, I haven't seen any research that you've done and I may have missed like a few studies or, or whatnot, but you know, you're so well um, versed in this whole physique space. I, Imagine you have some opinions or thoughts. Um, you yeah, us we there?
1: attempted to do a case series studies in which, and we published that work. James Longstrom was my graduate student at the time, and he was the, the coordinator of that and, and really drove the, the design. And our attempt, and I'm going to start with an attempt, because this is not how it ended up. Our attempt was we had eight bodybuilders, males and females, that we tracked after their shows. Four Mm -hmm. of them were going to do a reverse diet where they were slowly going to increase their calories. And that's what you asked, right? Reverse dieting? Yeah. 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 They were going to slowly increase their calories for eight weeks, 10 weeks after their show. The other four were going to do a recovery diet, which was, they weren't going to slowly increase their calories. They were going to have a larger increase in calories right after the show and be comfortable with gaining more body fat sooner. Mm. And what we, what we were hoping, if I can just show, we were hoping Mm. that one group would go up like this and the other group was going to do this. But what we Mm. found was this, like nobody really did what they said and they kind of just overlapped. So we couldn't really differentiate the two approaches of a true reverse diet versus a recovery diet. And I mm. think it's, it's going to be very hard to do research in that area because I think if a reverse diet is going to work, if that's going to be effective, I think you have to start from a pretty low body fat level or a pretty long uh, caloric deficit. Mm. And then if you slowly go back, um, in theory, you slowly increase calories you do not gain fat, even though you're increasing calories.
2: Mm.
1: Um, and I've seen that anecdotally. Um, mm. I just, I don't think I've seen it in the research literature. And I th- again, I think it's going to be hard to do it in the research literature other than a case study.
3: Mm. Um,
1: so my thought is, I don't know, I'll go back five years or longer. Lane Norton, who's a, who's a colleague of mine, he was telling me about reverse dieting. And I was like, I don't think that, that can't happen. Like, if you're going you're gonna to increase calories, you're going to gain fat. And he's like, no, Bill, I've, I, you know, I've worked with multiple clients. And then I worked with a client and of course I'm a researcher. So I was like, Hey, let's try this. Uh, and it happened in front of my eyes. The client was my wife, which mm. I was able, we were able to control every aspect. She got very lean. And then we slowly, um, I have all her data still. And I, you know, I measured her body, body composition. Mm-hmm. She got to where she was eating. A lot of food, and she did not gain fat. So my thought is, there's something to reverse dieting. Mm. I don't, I can't explain a mechanism. Um, I can't even point to a study, but I can point to um, my wife or a, an N size of one, where it yeah. was very, um, very uh, eye opening to me as a as a researcher.
0: Yeah, have you tried it yourself, Bill?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, Maybe two years ago, I got lean for me. Um, Mm. Maybe got down to about 12% body fat for me. And I slowly increased a very similar approach to my wife, but I didn't have the same uh, um, outcome as my wife. I got to where I was gaining fat (laughs) (laughs) as I kept increasing. Um, So I didn't notice, yeah. Uh, What I remember my wife was saying, I can't eat all this food and she was still lean. I got to the point where I can still eat all this food and I'm gaining fat, so it (laughs) was was not the same approach. So it's definitely not a a reproducible or it's probably one of those individualistic Mm. um, outcomes.
0: Yeah, I see a lot about it on, uh, in social media, in those case studies, and, and I follow a lot of Lane and Holly Baxter's um, work and, and what they've sort of described and, and and also have worked with a few clients as well. And we've done exactly what um, you, you described with your wife, that slowly, gradually increasing calories. And I think the thing that I understand from reverse dieting is sometimes – out in social media it is sold almost as a fat loss approach eat more lose fat because a lot of what you see is people are uh, people like your wife who managed to stay lean throughout um whereas i know that's not necessarily always the case um but also it's it's almost for some people it would almost be you're continuing that diet because it's such a slow increase in calories that you still have to be a little bit restrained potentially um And you have to sort of manage expectations about how long that process might take, potentially. Yeah, it's a
1: very disciplined, especially if you've been dieting for a long time, and now you're going to continue to just slowly go back. Um, It's funny you you said though, um, you know, it's not might not happen to everybody. I literally just communicated with somebody who's working with a coach. They have her increasing calories slowly, and she's gained like 15 pounds, and she thinks it's Mm. mostly fat. And they keep saying, "Hey, this is gonna." help your metabolism. And you know, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't like to tell people who are working with coaches anything different because they're, they're not one, they're not paying me. And two, yeah. I respect a coach client relationship, but mm. I felt bad. It's like, maybe you're how, wh- wh- how, what makes you think your metabolism is even damaged or slow? Like, have you yeah. had it measured? They said, no. I'm like, well, I, I, I don't, I don't know if this reverse is working for you then if you're yeah. gaining all this body fat. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I felt, I felt yeah. bad. It
1: happened to be a, a female. Um, so, yeah, there's that. So there mm. there's, there's one of those reverse diets that is not going well.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think about other people that I have worked with, and they just actually think they're under-eating a lot of the time, and they are, but they're doing that sort of under-eating, under-eating, under-eating blowout. You know, and then, you know, yeah. rinse and repeat. And in fact, they're not under eating, but if they just lifted their calories daily, they wouldn't have the blowout. They'd probably end up enjoying their food more and actually eating more. And, and it would feel like they were eating more, but actually their caloric uh, intake would probably not be too different either.
1: Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's amazing. Again, if you're tracking your macros, you, you, you see those trends.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, Bill, just to finish off, um, I sort of mentioned at the start of the call, oh, we won't go into that hard work about exercise and the thoughts around that. And you were like, actually, I've got some thoughts around how the the work required to lose body weight um, that requires sort of exercise. Do you want to expand on that? If you can even remember that part of our conversation? Yeah, it's.
1: I just have a recurring thought. The message, at least some of the stuff I see with the um, the the health at every size. I mean, that's not evidence based. If you're overweight, you're you're not as healthy as you are when you're not carrying excess body fat. Yeah. Now that is not to make you know to to think less of any individual who happens to to be overweight. Um, I've been overweight. I know what that feels like. Um, Mm. My my I come from an overweight family. But to tell people that that's fine, don't worry about it, that's not doing anybody any favors. I think what's doing a favor is to say, you, you, if you want to optimize your health, you need to be at a given BMI or body weight, and here are, here are the best approaches to do that. Mm. And some of those approaches are not, it, it's never easy it, it mm. losing body fat is not easy. So I'd like to think as I'm raising children, don't ever get to where you are overweight, especially when you're young, to now where you're going to have to fight this. Because there, mm. there's some evidence to suggest, you know, um, childhood obesity, it, it's something that you're going to struggle with the rest of your life. So if you can mm. prevent it from starting, you have such a better outcome. So I'm just, i am I, I just get worried with all of the messaging about, the the negatives of you know diet culture weight loss culture and, and there is a lot of um unethical people in the space but that doesn't mean that you throw out the entire message um mm. i think we're doing a lot of um a lot of harm because people are now thinking oh i'm overweight and that's fine because x y or z person says it's fine um and again i think my research is it's for people who want to lose body fat or who want to be who want to walk around more fit and have a lower body fat percentage. Mm. Not telling anybody that they should, but if you want to, the the, the research that I do is is going to be the, the most scientifically based approaches to get there.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And Bill, what have you got coming up in the next couple of years as sort of building on on what you're doing? Any, any research that we should look out for? Any, anything that's really exciting you at the moment that we may not have sort of touched on?
1: Yeah, I'm currently working, we're doing a um, another high versus low protein diet study in females. This time we're looking at non-resistance trained females. So females that didn't currently lift weights at all. Mm-hmm. And we're actually doing two things there. We're asking, is higher protein better if you're just starting training? And it mm-hmm. may not be when you're starting. The other thing is, which you'll appreciate, we have one group tracking everything and we have one group not tracking anything. We just have mm-hmm. them intuitively increasing their protein Mm. so let's if the data says that it it is important to have higher protein the next question is okay do you need to track it or can you just try to purposefully eat more Mm. so we're going to answer that question uh the other thing is i I plan on starting a research review in Ah. the next year and that that will be highly focused on must building muscle and losing body fat, um, exactly, you know, around my research. So it, it's, it's going to be very niche and focused only on that. I'm not going to branch out into a lot of other areas, but I'm very excited about that because that's, that's, that's what I love. I love body composition, dieting, exercise to, to maintain low body fat levels and to have as much muscle as possible.
0: That's awesome, Bill. I love that geeks like you and my mate Eric and other people are doing these research reviews to help practitioners like me help my client, help our clients, you know, and, um, and yeah, it is quite niche. Well, you say niche. Oh, that's a real, uh, US thing. I, I think
1: we use both. Um, yeah, what do you guys say?
0: We say niche. Uh, nice. that's a very niche area. And I've just heard niche so often from the people that I follow over in the States. I'm like, Oh, that must be a thing. Um, so I'm certainly looking out for, I'll certainly keep an eye out for the research review. Like it's, it's just great professional development, really. Like it's awesome.
1: Yes. Yeah. And to be fair, I actually reached out to um, Eric and the mass people because I have a lot of respect for them. And they've been nothing but supportive. They were like, "Yo," they've even offered me free advice. So I, I have a lot of just I have a ton of respect for them. Um, And w- what I'm going to put out is not going to be anything close to what mass does. That is they they are. Uh, That's an amazing um product that they do.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I subscribe to it, even though I'm not at all in that space. But just because I'm a geek about the the whole area, you know, I just like to sort of know what's going on and and at least, um, you know, or or you know, pretend to understand a lot of it. Um, Bill, thank you. You've been so generous with your time this morning. Um, can you tell us, uh, for the listeners who might not be aware of you, um, where they may be able to find out more?
1: Yeah, the only place I really am active is on Instagram. And, and that my Instagram handle is Bill Campbell, PhD, And I just try to educate. Um, I do a lot of multiple choice, true, false questions just because I'm a professor and I, I, I write exam questions. So um, yeah, if you like um, weight loss stuff, if you like resistance training and sports nutrition, that's, I think you'll kind of like w- what I do.
0: Yeah, no, I 100% agree. It's a wealth of information. Bill, you have a great rest of your Friday and um, thanks so much.
1: Yeah, thank you for the interview.
0: All right. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation that I had. And look, we mentioned it in the podcast, but he has such a good channel over on Instagram using his educational background to provide really good information that busts myths on dieting and helps inform people on best practice he's definitely worth a follow and that is bill campbell phd on instagram and you can also find links to papers we discussed and also how else to find information on dr campbell over in the show notes for today's episode Next week on the show, I am chatting to my mate Grant, who, if you may remember, was the very first interview I did for Wikipedia. So Grant is a professor of public health in New Zealand, and he's most recently shared his views on COVID-19, on vaccine mandates, and just where he sees the state of things in New Zealand as it stands. And look, you might be suffering from COVID fatigue. I think we probably all are. But I do feel it's really important to continue to sort of maintain an interest or a presence in what's going on around us. Because as soon as we check out, you just don't have the opportunity to, um, to really get more than just one perspective. And Grant brings another perspective to the conversation. And uh, so I think that anyone out there with a curious mind is really going to enjoy that interview. Until then, though, team, you can find me over on Facebook Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or over on my website mickeywillardin.com where in addition to the recipe portal access you're able to connect with me via an online meal plan for athletes for some more food inspiration fat loss plans or book a consultation one-on-one with me that is all over on All alright guys hope you have a great week see you later bye bye